welcome back to Filmcraft and today we're going to talk about stuff and things so get ready for that <laughs> what's great about that is we can literally just copy and paste that into any episode because technically unless we just say hi welcome to Filmcraft and the episode ends then we're never lying because we do talk about stuff and things yeah. i mean uh, that wouldn't really be good for people listening but you know we could technically do that <laughs> my mind for some reason automatically went to if you had used that in a date scenario and like you show up the person you're on a date with is across from you like we're gonna talk about stuff and things and then at the end of the night when they're like, that's the most boring date ever. You're like, what? I laid it all out in front of you. We were going to talk about stuff and things. And we did. You can't be upset. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend that as a technique for anyone. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, yeah, this was your idea, Latif. So why don't you jump into it, give them the lay of the episode, and let's kick it off. Yeah, I think, you know, this. I can relate to this going back to, I guess, in film school where they especially during like directing classes or in cinematography classes where they tell you about things like camera placement i think is an easiest example because this is something that i learned very early um related to uh you know techniques to kind of convey something through um how you use the camera or where you place the camera that's supposed to inform you on what the character is like or what the character is feeling or something and I think these are useful as examples, but I think the problem with these types of things are sometimes when you learn them once or when you learn them from someone, you take them as a dogma and you carry them forward throughout your career and your um, you know, future work. But in reality, they don't really have any connection to you as a person. And I think that's the kind of breakdown that I want to go across. And these ex example is if you put a camera in front of a character at a lower angle looking up at them, it enforces that they're overbearing or powerful. And that's a very simple um, you know, example, but it's one that people often use. That's something that um, makes sense in a way because it shows something as large and um, big in the frame. But at the same time, not everyone's going to have that uh, distinction with that camera angle. Some people might see that and feel something completely different. Um, you know, maybe as a child, every time you saw that angle, you uh, connected to, you know, a parent who you really loved. So that angle to you might mean um, safety and um, attention or love, which is very different than what uh, you might learn from a film teacher or from an instructor or another filmmaker. So it's just the idea of taking these constructs that were taught, sometimes by example, but sometimes as dogma, and breaking them away and really understanding how to use technique that pertains to you as a person and how you can use that in your work. Yeah, and I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is like, if when you really look at everything, and like I'm not just talking film, everything people know, humanity knows at a macro level, like everything's just theories, right? And there's theories that can be backed up by a ton of stuff. Like you mentioned, if the camera is lower, it makes the subject look huge and intimidating. But 
these theories are only true until someone comes by and does something that totally blows it apart, right? So if you have that low angle and you're like, look, this is the most intimidating angle that exists, you know, try out 10 different things and you might find that even though I'm not a huge fan of them, like a Dutch angle from diagonally above the subject head is the one you're going for. And that looks much more intimidating. So like when people tell you this is the only way to do something, it's just that's the only way that either it's typically done or they think how it should be done. And that it also is informed by so many different things in your personal life and in the environment you're in as well and and also things are informed culturally as well um I, even when we're talking about things like color um i was having a conversation with someone who who's a color theorist that's what they actually specialize in yeah it, it, it's outside of film like what what they do is they kind of go into the science of color how it affects people how it's created how it's perceived and also just like how it um, is, uh, I guess, associated with different cultural beliefs. Um, yeah, and emotions, right? Like red is danger, that kind of thing. Well, that that's ha- that has actually more to do with cultural belief, has less to do with like our initial instincts with color. Because for some, some cultures, red might mean okay. really good emotions. For some, red might mean really bad emotions. So actually has more to do with culture. But... Um, uh, in terms of all these types of things, I think it's, especially as an artist, it's a lot more um, useful for you to approach these things from a point of how it um, reflects how you're actually feeling. Because most of what an artist will do, I think at a base level, I can't say this for every artist, but for myself at least, is taking techniques, taking um, you know camera placement, color, music, all that stuff, and using it to convey how I feel about something so it makes more sense for me to analyze it through that way but if I use someone else's approach or someone else's technique and try to um, put that into how I work it's not necessarily going to be true to how I feel it just I'm using something that I've seen before Um, but you know there, there might be a valid reason for you to take someone else's technique and use it because it does make you feel a certain way so it all has to do with um I guess the motivation behind doing something like that. Yeah, totally. And the thought that just occurred to me as well is how you said, like, you know, red means danger to some people because that's their culture, right? And other people, it would mean good luck or whatnot. You can take that and look at a different perspective from, again, going like, say, in this angle where you're looking up at a subject is intimidating. And maybe it feels that way to you because you've obviously watched movies like that before and it's kind of ingrained in you through that. But one thing that, you know, might work for you is if you watch those same movies and you turn off all the audio, because audio I find has a very distinct way of getting into your memory and emotions kind of thing. And just looking at that frame and like the way it moves and everything and say, you know, is it the whole package done up like the visual the audio and everything going on that makes me feel like this is an intimidating angle to use or is when you strip away the audio and just look at the image and you know whether it's moving or not does that make you feel the same way and i think that's an interesting mental experiment for people to do right and and even in terms of like these techniques used in film it will vary from different parts of the world as well like a lot of techniques used in western um cinema and filmmaking is kind of like 
um, available through most of it, from independent all the way up to commercial films. But seeing how like a, a Japanese mm-hmm. filmmaker might use filmmaking techniques could have some similarities, but a lot of it will be informed by culture and stuff. Even in terms of acting, you know, the way actors are in one part of the world is going to be really different from another part of the world. A lot to do with like society um, and also the history of how they would uh, bring these things up. So, you know, I think where you live and the culture that you personally grew up in is going to have a huge effect on how you make art and how you are as a filmmaker. And, and I want to focus more on filmmaking as well, just because it'll be more useful to the people listening. But um, I think in terms of those techniques, sometimes it's even interesting to just break away from even the things that you might have learned from the, you know, the, the movie culture that you grew up in and, and trying to find your own technique in your own voice. You know, because like classically, for example, like a slow push in on something might indicate to pay attention or that there's something important being said, or there's a moment that's being, I don't know, um, magnified in a sense, literally by magnifying the frame. Um, <laughs> but, you know, sometimes we can use techniques like that um, counter to what they might mean and, and try to like flip the way they're used. But sometimes you might try to do that and it might fail miserably because the the culture that you live in, everyone's going to have a slightly different language and approach to something. Whereas you might be like, no, but I want pushing in to mean this is not important. But everyone that watches your film is not going to associate that with being not important. They can associate with being very important. So it also has to <laughs> ha- have a sense with how do people perceive your movie in a group setting? Because they're all going to have similar opinions based on how they watch movies so you can't necessarily go that hard against how things are you have to understand what like a a common language is between filmmakers but there are ways you can use um you know for example color sound acting styles um and also camera movement and placement to slightly go against the norm but also get across something that you might feel is interesting Yeah, totally. And another thing to keep in mind with that, too, is just like eras, right? Like, even if you just isolate Western culture and everyone, you know, has seen a movie in our lifetime. And if you're listening to this, you've probably seen tons of them. So you kind of have a a good barometer for what good acting is, right? But then go watch some movies from the 40s. And like, aside from Orson Welles and a few standouts, the acting back then was fucking terrible. Like, it was god-awful, but at the time, it was great, right? Like, that's the kind of acting that was in. People really responded to it. It, However, if you were to do a lot of that kind of acting in a movie today, people would be like, this person is the worst actor I've ever seen. So, like, these things will grow and change and move throughout cultures within themselves, right? And when you mentioned, like, the different cultures will use camera angles differently i remember when we first started making what we don't say i think we were in either in pre-production or we were heading up to it it was in that like meaty part where we're really in development and you and i were starting to talk about how we were going to shoot it and you were like well what if we did all the singles like a an akira kurosawa movie like people every character looking directly into the camera and i was like 
at first I was like, oh, we can't do that. <laughs> and I watched a couple Japanese movies and I really, really dig it. Like, I like the way they frame and they do things differently than, you know, we would do them here. But at the same time, I was like, I don't know if it's really appropriate for what we don't say. Having said that, I still do think about it every now and then and say, you know, I wonder what the movie would have looked like had we done that. Like, I bet you it would have had more of a dramatic effect than you would really think if we shot it in that way. Yeah, I, I think more of a, I guess, Yasujiro Ozu kind of way, as opposed to Kur- Kurosawa. I actually haven't seen a ton of Kurosawa mm-hmm. films, um, but I know Ozu okay. would shoot that way, for example, where they had people looking more towards the camera as opposed to looking um towards another character on the screen but i know i know what you're talking about um but it's Mm -hmm. definitely like a very different technique because like in in more you know like american north american cinema characters tend to look more at each other and the way they're shot is that way they're always looking um Mm -hmm. you know across the room to someone but it's not often that we break into that that line between two characters and they're looking kind of towards the camera, um, even in terms of eyeline and stuff like that. But it does have a different effect. But even in terms of like editing style, for example, like European cinema, um, there tends to be a much slower pace to the films and a much slower pace to the editing. It, it, it drags on a lot longer than it would when you compared to the North American film. And if you actually broke down the amount of cuts in the film, there would be a pretty substantial difference between the amount of cuts per film for normal American, even independent films, compared to uh, European films. So that's also something that's more deep-rooted in the culture and in the temperament of the people that make and watch the films. Yeah, definitely. And I just finished watching this series called Marianne on Netflix. It's a French horror series. It's set in France in some little town. The movie that I'm trying to get going next is a horror, right? So I'm trying to take in as much of it as I can. And there's so much horror out there that is terrible. And there's a really, really acclaimed American horror series that I don't know why I can't get into it. Like it's praised for pretty much everything across the board and I watch it and I'm like, this is a garbage fire. I, I don't know why. And then I go to watch this show, Marianne, which is in French and don't get me wrong. It's very, very highly rated as well. But I'm like, this is so much better than anything American that I've seen. Aside from like those, you know, the exorcist and those really, really good movies of the, of yesteryear i guess you could say but yeah it's interesting just the way they do things differently right down to like the pacing and their the characterization of the characters and i don't know i'm having a great time studying this kind of thing of like you mentioned different cultures and i think it can only make you a better filmmaker by doing it yeah and it's also going to help you figure out how you want to speak about you know filmmaking in general and stuff because you have to, at some point, kind of learn how you want to speak through the the techniques used, you know? Like, how often you use, like, a handheld camera, you know, what that means to you and stuff. And even the idea of ham- handheld camera, I think, for example, a lot of people think of handheld camera as being very, 
you know, realistic and raw and in the moment and with the people. But in reality, you know, like we don't see the world that way at all in any respect. Because our, our head and neck is basically like a gimbal. You know, it's actually super smooth. <laughs> you know, when you're walking down the totally. room and your head's looking around at stuff, it tends to be actually really smooth. And by example, the next time you walk down the street, just look at how kind of smooth and clean your eyesight is um, in respect to the world that you're looking at. There's not a lot of shaking and wobbling. There's just a little bit from, you know, your... Uh, feet as you walk down the street but in general it's actually really smooth um and I, I think that's why a lot of people when they see handheld stuff they get kind of nauseated because it's so different from their their reality of how the world is to them so i think that's also you know one of the things you have to think about like what does a certain thing tell and feel like for you um and i find uh you know stuff that's like shot on like a gimbal and a steady cam often it does look super smooth and a little smoother than how we do see. It's actually almost without any bumps or shakes. So it almost looks like the camera's floating. So it's almost like a weird in-between. Or if you want like the, the movement in a camera in the world to seem realistic, you want it to be mostly smooth, but just have like a little bit of up and down movement that you would expect from your normal walking movement. That's about as close as you can get to what it's like for a human to walk through a place or through the world. So um, these are kind of things you have to kind of really pay attention to and, you know, perceive on your own time and, and make these distinctions. Um, and that's that's kind of where I'm going with. You have to really think about your perceptions of the world and how that can be translated into your craft um, and and removing sometimes the kind of you know generic um idea of what people have as a certain way of doing something so getting rid of the idea of that handheld and um being like with people and the cameras on your shoulder is very immediate and realistic where does that really mean immediate and realistic i find actually being handheld and really close to the actors when they're doing something to almost be kind of intrusive to be impersonal but in a very personal way like you're kind of intruding in a place where you're not supposed to be so it's almost a little more jarring um but you know that's my perception of it because like the movements and and the way you're reacting is so immediate to what's happening in front of you um so you know my perception of that feels like that but um you know you could shoot that way and not move the camera at all and just kind of be lingering in the room it might give a different perception to the audience so it's all about how you interpret these things. Yeah, it's totally fair. Let me ask you this. Where do you think the idea of handheld being the, you know, up close and personal and call it a bit more intimate camera angle came from? If Because I totally agree. Like, even right now, I'm looking around and I'll look right to left. It is a very smooth motion. Very smooth. Where do you think the whole idea of shaky hand cam being intimate came from um i don't know i think it, you know i'm not an expert on like the history of how these terms are created but if i had to like make a a guess just based on you know popular culture i think it might be from news people you know you, when you get the idea of like 
you know, the news cameraman who's rushing towards a disaster. It's all shaky and he's trying to get in there and it's a very first person point of view kind of thing. I might partly come from that, but I'm, I'm also just might come from the actual imagery of it and, and the experience of, you know, shooting something handheld where you, you have to be very close to the subject matter um, and the camera is connected to you. So in a way you feel like you're very much immediately in the area and it does feel very personal to the person shooting it maybe. But in a way, um, you know, as, as the language and, and technique changes over time, it's gonna have a different feeling. Um, you know, if you look at the way, um, you know, Paul Greengrass shoots stuff, almost all of it is handheld. Um, super shaky. shaky and you know the the perception of it is to me like when i watch it i don't feel like i'm there you know this feels like real to me um but it, it does have a certain effect it's kind of uneasy and a little like there's no moment of stillness it always feels like there's something about to happen that's not good um but also lens lens choice it's you know impacts that greatly as well if you're handheld in on a 24 or if you're handheld on a 70 next to someone it completely changes how it feels so these are all things that that are going to affect you know handheld camera even though that's just one way to shoot something yeah yeah i totally agree and yeah the, the paul greengrass thing like it to me it feels like you're somewhere between like being tossed into a moving dryer and spinning in circles <laughs> and a roller coaster like it's very uneasy yeah. to an extent right so here's a question that i think would be very very interesting for the audience um if someone doesn't have access to a camera and they can't you know try out different lenses and whatnot what's the best way for them how would you tell them this is how you go about experimenting and learning a craft without th having those tools kind of thing without having like any camera or just like a um yeah like they got a cell phone that's it well you know that's that's one way to do it you know maybe they could write a monologue or something and and take their phone and shoot it from several different angles shoot it like you're uh talking into the phone for like an instagram video and then and set it up in the corner of the room and almost do it like the camera's been placed and it's spying on you or something like those are all going to be very different and and you know and inform you in a different way but um i mean even that is an example you know placing a camera to look like it's spying on the person that it's filming say that's used in the film you have to really really think about that and actually it starts to get into the person who's placing the camera's psyche they have to assume kind of a voyeuristic mm -hmm. point of view and be like you know if i was some pervert or if i was some guy who you know needed to get some information on someone or, you know, say if it was just a security camera I was setting up um, and I needed to put it in a room where someone wouldn't know it was looking at them, where would I put that camera? And that decision is going to be really informed by that person um, and, and what they think is the right decision. And when that's put into a film, that's magnified because you're really making a distinct choice there. So you have to really be thinking about how you would go about that. Um, you know, would you put it in the ceiling because it's the least likely... Um, place where someone would look when they enter a room and you know that you'd get away with that 
or would you put it like in a bookshelf because it would give you the best point of view you know these are all things you know for you as an artist to think about or if you're truly a pervert for you as a pervert to think about <laughs> you know your personal point of view so really how you would choose to do something that totally makes sense. Um, one thing that I remember you telling me, and I don't think I'm ever going to forget this, is I think it was right, like we met on set and then we didn't see each other for like a year or whatever before we really started working together. And I remember we were out getting like a coffee or something and you said that very often when you walk into a room, you'll just look at the way that the room is naturally lit and kind of study it. And I thought that that was like the most interesting thing. Um, are there any other exercises you do like that to kind of observe the natural world and i assume i can only assume that you're trying to translate that into film in some way in your head or at least catalog it in a way where it can be translated later and i think it's a really useful thing for people to do i mean i try and do that quite a bit with the way that people act and the way they talk to each other and the way that people have conversations but i don't do it so much on a technical level like i imagine you would so what are some other things like that that you do well like for example like when i'm walking outside at nighttime you know maybe down a city block or you know by like a street with a bunch of restaurants or something i like to look at how it's lit at nighttime and you'll find examples and these are aren't things you've set up yourself these are just pre-existing in the world you'll find places that are lit nicely naturally natural in the sense that uh, you know it's like a restaurant's lights or something or very poorly or, or kind of ugly and you can make choices on you know what your preference would be if you're walking down the street and if i had to imagine if i had to shoot a scene at night around a certain kind of area I've kind of already calculated which places I like visually and which I don't. And I can make decisions on how it's going to benefit me if I were to shoot there, for example. So oftentimes when I, um, you know, for example, we have to shoot a night scene on a street in a city. I already know which places would work. And sometimes like someone might come to me and be like, how about this street? And I, and I could look at it and they might find one aspect of that street, which is nice to shoot. Like it's got a nice um, architecture to the building, but it could be completely dark and really shitty in terms of lighting. So you have to think, yeah, that building looks nice, but there's no light here. It's so dark um, and it's beside like highway or something. Um, and that would absolutely <laughs> ruin, um, you know, your chances of shooting there because there's so many obstacles for you to overcome. But that person might look at one aspect of it and, and find that to be like compelling enough for them to make that choice. And I've, I've seen that happen a lot where there's one thing that someone just falls in love with, but all the things surrounding that one thing make it impossible to shoot there. But sometimes they might persist and make that choice. So a lot of it has to be about looking at every aspect of it and seeing how it's going to you know work in your benefit. You know, for example, that location and what we don't say where... Um, ben and Juliet have that conversation when Juliet takes off from her house. You know, that yeah. that I found at nighttime just walking around the park. And I was like, huh, what about this place? It looks kind of interesting. I, you know, walked away from it and I looked at it and thought, yeah, you could shoot it this way. And then looked at the lighting, considered the sound, um, how feasible it would be to shoot there. And I took pictures of it. 
And when, you know, we met up the next time, I showed you the photos and kind of was the perfect place for us to shoot that scene. Yeah, I think there's another good lesson in there as well, because we really only talked about two places to shoot that scene, the one you're describing. And then there was another one where we theoretically could do it, but it was we would have to put the actors up on like this 20 foot high like concrete pad where their legs could kind of hang off and everything. And with the way the sun would have set right behind it, it would have been really beautiful. But then when you sit like just that image in my mind, I'm like, that looks really cool. I bet you that would really work well for the scene. Not that the one we shot didn't work well. It worked really, really well. But then when you start thinking of it logistically, it's like, okay, they're 20 feet high. Safety is immediately like, you really have to think about it. And then when they are that high up and you don't have a structure you can build in front of them, because it's like something where their legs are dangling off. So in front, it's a 20 foot drop, right? You can't get to eye level with them or anything. So how are you going to shoot it? And then it was some, it was a place where there would have been a lot more foot traffic and just a lot more things that could go wrong. Um, So when you say that, like, you know, some directors will just fall in love with, this one aspect of this one place and the rest of the aspects are total shit do you find any commonalities like directors tend to be drawn towards this one little thing that just gets them going that you know makes them ignore everything else or is it generally unique i think it varies from director to director and it it, it will have a lot to do with that director's you know personality and their personal preferences in terms of what they think is the most important um you know and then this isn't a judgment on certain styles of directors. Everyone's a little different, but I find directors who focus a lot on acting and, you know, dramatic performances often lack in, um, you know, visual skills and uh, in, in terms of uh, actual camera stuff and in terms of framing. And then directors who focus too much on visuals and, um, I guess technical aspects often lack skills in uh, drama and acting and and tend to have a harder time with getting performances from actors. And, you know, there's some directors who have a fine balance and are able to do a little bit of everything. But um, I I think when you're lacking in one of those or when you're not as well versed, um, it doesn't mean that you can't get better. You can always, you know, get more skills in areas that you're not competent in but it helps to have people that can support you in that aspect having a really strong cinematographer for example um who is technically skilled but also you know can cooperate with you um for the needs that you have for for this for the actual film you're making uh but you know i i think like one thing that i see over and over again it's just like really poorly night interior do you mean like way too dimly lit dimly lit but also like you just kind of feel like it wasn't really thought out too well um on parts of everyone and and i think really in independent filmmaking i find a lot of like interior house apartment night scenes always look so bad kind of boring and a little like un how would i say un uh unmotivated Uh, just not interesting there's no it oftentimes it'll be like let's just make it look natural like a house and it's like of course 
you want it to look realistic, but you don't want it to look like shit. Um, and oftentimes it'll just be using the actual lights in the house. Um, you know, which is not a problem if it works, but like 90% of the time, the lights that are already present in the house are going to look pretty bad. And you need to supplement it with practicals or, you know, creating a lighting setup that that can work for the location. But oftentimes, like, it'll end up being pretty lazy and look kind of bland. And I think it takes a lot of skill and work on both the director, the production designer, and the cinematographer to make an interior house at night look good. Because it's not easy, it's challenging. What advice would you give for doing that interior night setup? Because like you mentioned, it's it's pretty easy to make it look plain. So what? how can you add some personality to it i mean what i see often and i've made this mistake too is there are too many lights set up so it's kind of a wash but the problem is all those lights are really weak sources so it's a wash of weak light sources and it creates a very kind of flatly exposed image because there's nothing that's really pushing the image or making anything stand out and i find you know more effective is to use less sources but with more power in them and then controlling and shaping those as opposed to using several sources that are not as strong you know i'll, I'll find like you might have like six pot lights on and then like a stove light on and then like a house lamp on then a tv on and there's already like five six different sources there and they're all on and they're all kind of around the same level which is a problem as well Whereas if you had one house light on, the whole room is kind of in darkness. But that one light, that one like lamp, say beside a table, was your main source and you made it kind of strong. It would create a distinct spot in the frame for you to kind of focus around. But it would also illuminate the areas where you want it to illuminate. Whereas if you have like seven lights on in the background as well, you're seeing parts of the room that you don't even want to see or use. So it's about focus and kind of channeling the the you know power that you have available um to do something useful for you as opposed to just kind of splaining across so, the room i always find this interesting when people say this where you say like i've made this mistake too i think it's something that you know people grow as artists everyone should make mistakes it's a good thing how did you recognize you were making that mistake and how did you correct it like just in this one specific example um, I think you just start learning from experience. You start to understand like how to, you know, use light sources to your advantage. And I guess, you know, if I could loop this back to the original topic on how to use stuff that speaks to your experiences as opposed to just doing something because it seems like, um, you know, a tried and true technique or whatever. Um, this was actually partly based on just how I see things, but also it's, it's also just kind of good way to approach lighting. That is part of like a regular way that, you know, a cinematographer might work and that's use bigger, softer lights um, and bigger, softer sources that you can control, which will create a more focused, you know, lighting scheme. Whereas if you had like six or seven lights up um, and they're all kind of doing different things. But in reality, you're not really focusing on what what's the most important thing that you need to shoot. 
um, it could get pretty messy and confusing. Where, and I think that's an early mistake you make in film school, where you think, that I, you know, if I'm really a cinematographer, I have to put up six or seven different lights, and you know, I kind of have them all <laughs> hidden in the frame and like pointing at like a corner, one at the actor, and then one like pointing off the edge of this like wine glass to give it some kick or something like that. The more you do it, the more you realize you don't really need eight lights up. And also you can create a pretty strong image using one light that kind of does a broader uh, a broader stroke across the frame as opposed to like seven tiny lights that kind of do little tweaking and stuff. And I, in a weird way, I find this kind of goes into color correction too. I find the <laughs> easiest stuff to color grade is the stuff where I have to do the least amount of work on. Um, or I, I can use like a broad stroke and, and like really get the look in as few steps as possible. But if I have like an image and I have to make like 15 different layers and like windows and like change this and that, it's often, you know, poorly shot or poorly lit. And I have to do way more work in post to get it to a place that's usable. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's totally fair. And I... I feel like we have to do another episode on color because every time you talk about it and the more time that passes, I just have so many different questions and I have so much more respect for colorists. Actually, that's what I'm going to ask you real quick. Do you find people often undervalue a colorist? Like, did people often just give you a movie and say, like, I don't know, just make it look pretty. Do color. Yeah. Well, sometimes. I mean, I think some people do understand how important it is to have a colorist but you know i think that step has to be kind of a continuum through the process it has to start from the cinematographer i think sometimes people will undervalue what a good cinematographer can do for you and then undervalue what a good editor can do and then after that what a good colorist can do for you because all those things need to go right in order for the colorist to do a really good job you know, the, the cinematographer has to light it and shoot it properly. The editor has to select the strongest shots that work for the story, but also look good. And then the color is, is really just putting the, the cherry on top of that. Um, obviously, it's more work than putting the cherry on top, but you know, sometimes it feels that easy. <laughs> and sometimes it feels like you're you know, trying to paint a barn or something. It's just like a whole shitstorm. <laughs> oh, that's great. <sighs> yeah we should do another episode on color i think there's a lot more to be said there yeah i mean I, i'm i'm learning stuff every day too um i i haven't even experienced all the things you can as a colorist so i'm sure there are more stories there's a lot i don't know yet but so far um i've had a lot of interesting experiences anyways you know just that sentence is very comforting to me at least like i think there's often a expectation that people will just know everything when they're going into something or even when you know it's like you are the editor you should know everything about editing you're the director you should know everything about directing and it's like you know everyone's still learning regardless of who they are you can go to ridley scott and i guarantee you he's like the amount of shit i learned on my last movie is crazy and i find that very inspiring what's your thought on that kind of sentiment well i think anyone who's an expert 
well, not an expert, but like someone who's, you know, better than your average at a certain part of, um, you know, any filmmaking profession. Generally, they know that they don't know everything, but they know at the same time that they know more than the average person. Um, and a lot of times, you know, a, a director will be a generalist. They know every a little bit about every part of the process, but really they're good leaders. Um, but, you know, there's some directors who are absolute, like, genius directors who know almost everything about every part of filmmaking. <laughs> but I think it's good to know that there's always someone who's a little better than you and knows a little more than you. Um, but the more important thing is, you know, this isn't a competition of who knows the best. At the end of the day, we're all trying to make films and it's a very personal experience and really more tied to like what you're trying to say as opposed to how much you know. Um, and I think that's the distinction. Mm. So many awesome pondering things are going through my head right now. <laughs> All right. So going back to the original topic, is there any other bit of kind of knowledge or anything that you wanted to leave the audience with on the idea of, you know, really finding your own voice, but through doing things that are unconventional, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, playing with forms that are not typically, you know, like typical narrative storytelling where there's a, there's a kind of like structure you need to follow, you know, music videos, um, dance films, um, experimental films, stuff that's just outside the, nor the norm. Or even just filming something that you wouldn't normally film could be, you know, that for you. You know, maybe some guy's like, I'm going to, you know, rebuild this car and you can choose to film it in a really weird way or something. That could actually in inform something. But it's all just about, like, sometimes breaking loose. But, you know, sometimes having, like, a lot of rules and a lot of structure might al allow you to do something that you wouldn't normally do anyways. Um, so I think it's about, you know, being open to that, being openness to different experiences for sure. Um, and not being so one way of doing things, you know, maybe you're a narrative filmmaker, but there's an opportunity for you to make it a documentary film, which you never, you know, would imagine you would do. Um, but you might learn something really different and new from it. Maybe you have an insight about handheld camera work from that documentary experience. So it's really just about you know, being open to different experiences and and learning how you can take that experience and put them into your own um, style. Absolutely. I, you say things too good, Latif. You say things too good. Well, oftentimes I steal the things I say from other people, so. <laughs> you know what's funny? I always think about that, and I think about that because of the closing um, monologue in American History X, where it's like, whatever the brother's name is, Derek, I think. It's like Derek says that if you should steal from someone else to go out strong. <laughs> and I'm like, it's so true. It's so true. <laughs> well, in that case, I have the hugest words. The hugest. <laughs> I have the best words. Uh. <laughs> All right, that's awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't have any closing thoughts. I think you, you said it great. Um, and I think next week we should do another episode about color because I'm, I'm feeling the color. 
Yeah, I mean, I just... I, I, for the first time, I did something where... Something was shot digitally, and we're very heavily trying to make it into 16mm look. And I've never done... You know, I've had people be like, I wanted this to look more like film. And I was like, sure, whatever. And then we try something. But this was very specifically trying to make something look like 16mm film. So maybe we can get into something a little more technical like that. But it's very... It was very kind of fun for me because I've never had to do that on top of color. Um, and I think that might be interesting for people to hear. Mm. If you don't mind me asking, like, how did it turn out just generally speaking? Did you manage to recreate that look to some degree? Yeah, I was I was super happy and very surprised with the look that we got at the end of the process. Because um, if I showed you the, the raw footage compared to the final um output it's it's substantially different um but a lot of it just has to do with like analyzing examples of 16 millimeter film and just doing the translation mm -hmm. um you know i i really didn't want to like buy someone's pack of like 16 millimeter luts and and like uh, and grains and shit i just wanted to kind of get there through a manual process um so if i was ever in a position where I need to recreate that, I didn't need to like purchase something for it. I could just kind of get there by myself. How much work was it to get there? Um, I think it took maybe three passes. That's not bad. To get to the final look, you know, it, definitely. Like I was still coordinating with the artists and the um, filmmaker, and you know what they like and what they didn't like. But in general, I got there pretty quickly, and they were all on board with the look at the end so yeah that's awesome all right cool well until next week this has been filmcraft i am matt ralston yeah, this is it too. and we'll see you for another episode on awesome color bye